I'm Spencer Bailey. This is Time Sensitive. Hey everyone, this week on the podcast, I'm joined in the studio by the MacArthur Genius Fellow and landscape architect Walter Hood. The creative director and founder of Hood Design Studio in Oakland, California, Walter recently took over as the chair of the Department of Landscape Architecture and Environmental Planning at UC Berkeley, where he has taught since 1990. Walter and his firm are renowned for creating engaging, resonant spaces and culture-shifting environments the challenge how we think about not just neighborhoods and cities and parks, but also public space in general and the notion of landscape at large. His projects include a series of conceptual gardens at the International African American Museum in Charleston, South Carolina, the grounds of the campus of the tech company NVIDIA in Santa Clara, California, and the landscapes of San Francisco's De Young Museum in Golden Gate Park and the Broad Museum in Los Angeles. Currently, he's at work on the wayfinding for the Barack Obama Presidential Library in Chicago. What makes Walter's work particularly powerful is that he consistently makes space for new narratives, shaping alternative ways of thinking about, looking at, and experiencing the world. His designs embrace ambiguity, abstraction, and complexity in order to be for and representative of a multitude of voices and views. Through his work, Walter has time and again built transformative, ecologically sustainable public spaces that, in many instances, empower the marginalized communities they serve. On the episode, we discuss the intersection of social justice and landscape architecture, his arguments against what we traditionally deem, quote, memorials or monuments, and the power of language to literally shape the world around us. Before we get into it, I'd first like to thank our Season 8 presenting sponsor, the Maison Van Cleef and Arpels, which this year is working with the American Museum of Natural History in New York to present the exhibition Garden of Green, exquisite jewelry by Van Cleef and Arpels at the museum's Mignone Hall of Gems and Minerals. On view through March 2024, Garden of Green showcases 44 creations from the French High Jewelry House, 32 of which are on view in the U.S. for the first time. Creating a lush garden of jewelry, this impressive array of precious and ornamental green stones forms a dazzling journey that celebrates the beauty of gardens and nature. One area of the exhibition space highlights a diversity of green stones. Another concentrates on particular materials, such as jade, chrysoprase, and malachite. And a third displays a selection of majestic creations set with emeralds. You can learn more at www.amnh.org slash exhibitions. That's www.amnh.org slash exhibitions. And now, here's my conversation with Walter. Hi, Walter. Welcome to Time Sensitive. Ah, thank you, Spencer. Looking forward to it. I wanted to open our conversation today with the epigraph from your book, Black Landscapes Matter. It's a quote from Michel Sobel's book, The World They Made Together, which references, quote, a traditional African sacred cosmos. Sobel writes, time was viewed as having scale of value. There were good times and bad times, times that were favorable for an activity and times that were inauspicious for that special action. 
these particular events that were tied to time were also tied further to place. Events should and have occurred at particular places on Earth, places that were auspicious for and tied to the event. It's a heady quote, but <laughs> I, I wanted to ask first, how and why did you select that particular excerpt for the epigraph? And second, how do you personally think about this intersection of time and place? Well, I have to think about the piece now. I'm going back <laughs> why I chose it. But um, Kelso Bell's work I've used probably over the last 25 years in my cultural landscapes class. And when I read the piece, I was uh, reminded of growing up in North Carolina. And my grandmother kind of raised me from eight years until I was maybe 14 years old. And the elders always talked about good times and bad times. And so immediately when I read that, I could hear, right, my grandmother and the elders speaking. And, and it was always tied to, you know, if someone passed away, it was, it was a bad time. It wasn't like, oh, they passed away last week. It was just a period of time and it was mourning. And then there was a time of celebration or where grief just was laid to rest and you moved on. And it didn't relate to a day of the week, right? It didn't, it was like five days went by so everybody was okay. It was just this moment where it was now good times again. And that always stayed with me, uh, and particularly in rural North Carolina, because I'm from Charlotte, where in Charlotte, the clocks were, <laughs> okay, five o'clock, six o'clock dinner. But when we went to the country, there were clocks, but no one ever referenced them, right? And so this notion of time, it actually almost stood still. And I remember me and my siblings, it was like we were always in a hurry to get back to Charlotte. Because <laughs> that's where it's like you could count on time. When you went there, the time was just tied to place. And it was tied to this kind of rural landscape where things just happened. And that kind of stayed with me. And so when I read that and then doing the kind of work that I do, it kind of stayed with me as a way to be in a place. I like going to places and not thinking of the watch or the, but just to go and be, and you can actually find time, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I asked that. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the book, you write that as time passes, things accumulate around us, buildings, vegetation, objects, and even space. This accumulation is typical in cities as their dynamic engages specific environmental, political, and social cultural change. In many places, the accretion occurs unmitigated. In many cases in the United States, when time comes to change, black landscapes are wiped clean, leaving little to commemorate what came before. Can you share a bit about how you, through your work, seek to kind of mitigate this and also expanding out of that, create alternative spaces and new narratives? Yeah, um, I guess I would have to begin with the understanding that people live in these places, right? And so in brown and black landscapes, minority landscapes, people have lived in those places. And pretty much of the last century, they lived in these places in a neutral way, which was legislated. It was separate but equal. And even in the North, you still have this kind of segregation playing out. And so once integration occurred in this country, when people were allowed to migrate to these other places, 
it was almost as if they didn't live in, had not lived in the other places. And the other places were seen as empty. And so then it was okay to go in and start anew. But you're still forgetting people are still there and people was there and memories were created in those places. And it occurred to me, I don't know when, maybe it's like after a year in Rome at the American Academy, you know, and going to archaeological digs and things like that and listening to archaeologists talk about these archaeological places. I just remember going to Carthage and there's like nothing there. And we spent like four hours there. And of course, all the architects are like, I got to get out of here. You know, what are they talking about? But I was taken by, they were always, we know this. And there was an explanation of how people lived. And I was like, wow, we, we never do that in America to a certain degree. Right. And even if there's a cataclysmic, something happened cataclysmic, uh, like at Pompeii or whatever, there's kind of like, we got to figure out what happened. The Bay Area, we had an earthquake in 89. It's kind of like, okay, the freeway came down or whatever. And it's like, just get rid of it and let's just start anew. And so there wasn't this sense of kind of, of culture and that these places really mean something because if I go in and validate people were there, I'm validating people. And maybe then this double consciousness or the veil that people have to wear because of that subjectivity can be lifted up. And there can be this way to talk about these places that have not been invested in. Because literally most of these places was intentionally not to invest. Because if you don't invest, then all of these stereotypical or marginalization processes can take place. Like, oh, they can't take care of their own neighborhood. Right. And that's because you didn't put the tools in place the infrastructure in place for them to actually take care of it, where you actually subsidize other neighborhoods. Redlining. Right? And so there's this inequality. And so for me, in the beginning, it was really about just trying to validate that people were there and just telling the simple history. I had it in my mind 20 years ago that that could be a powerful conjuring, right? That I could then have be able to talk to people then on equal footing versus trying to coming in and treating them in a more paternalistic way, right? So if I could literally uncover that time, going back to that, and be articulate about it to them without giving value, there's a way in. And that's been kind of the, I wouldn't say the secret, but the difference in my practice than others that I... I'm very, very uh, cautious of going into a place and bringing something from the outside. I'm constantly looking to extract something from the inside to start the conversation. And it's a very difficult thing because sometimes there's nothing and you really have to dig, right? To find that linchpin to make a connection. I love this vision of you at an archaeological site at Carthage. <laughs> and, and I'm just thinking, you know, how profound in terms of thinking about your own practices. You've described it as a cultural yeah. practice, but could you speak a bit to this anthropological element, the digging? You know, when I was at the Art Institute, you know, the social practice thing had kicked in. And and I thought I fit into that, right? This idea that you go into communities and you become almost one with them to a certain degree, and that's the practice. And then I started noticing that that was just more about event, 
It was just more about the artists coming in and actually having an event and then leaving. It wasn't about being there, right? So I started thinking then about culture and cultural anthropology and how place and people are tied together, right? And that the detritus that they leave behind is actually, you can't have one without the other, right? And that's the most important thing in a way was like all of a sudden realizing that every place humans are, there is some manifestation of something, whether it's a whole or, I mean, there's something that manifests through our needs. And the needs can be very simple. They could be needs to get out of discomfort from the environment. The needs could be food. The needs could be belief. But there's something that marks and begins to change the place. And that to me is is why we do, meaning designers, architects, that's why we do what we do. And in some cases, we've forgotten all of that to a certain case. And for a while, there was a moment, I think, in architecture and design where phenomenology, you know, Christian Norbert Schultz, I mean, all of that, there's something going on here. How do we put our finger on it, right? And there was this moment where I thought, I was in architecture school at the time, I thought that, wow, this is amazing that we're thinking in this way. And, you know, that kind of found itself, kind of died off postmodernism and all these other things. But that always attracted me, this notion that there's something here. I don't know what it is. And it's created by this group of people, right? And I got to find out what that is. And, you know, that's that's an itch, right, that you just got to scratch. Well, it's making new meaning. And you've highlighted Monticello, the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama, and Gadsden's Wharf in Charleston, South Carolina, as these places where a sort of new narrative is emerging or has emerged um, because of work that's been done there. Could you talk a bit about what makes these particular sites so successful and dynamic? Well, they are about that particular place. I compare it to like, probably this is the better way to compare it to where King was struck down, Lorraine Hotel. When you go there, they have to talk about slavery, right? And the diaspora in the world. And you don't really talk about the place until you enter that room in the last part of the journey and Mahala Jackson, they re, you know, they kept the room the same, and then you can look out to the balcony, you can't go out to it. But most of the pedagogy in the experience is not about Memphis. And you see that in a lot of places where even in the National Mall, it's about everything, football, basketball, not about DC, <laughs> right? And so if you chose to talk about those places, these narratives would emerge. And I think these are the first places, and it took Monticello a long time to reckon with the place, but now they, they have to, to a certain degree. It just makes that story just more powerful, and it actually situates us even today in this very fragile idea of this democracy and whiteness and how whiteness literally had to mitigate the ugliness of it through an architecture, through a design vocabulary that allowed people to exist because that's some heinous stuff that you got to get up every morning to. 
to me, by locking it into a place, you have a more multidimensional experience of how we got here. And you go to Montgomery, and without the Justice Center in Montgomery, Montgomery would just be another capital with the story of King came, you know, here in the march ended here. But now to go to the Alabama River, to see the Alabama River right across, and to see all of these stories commingled, you know, when I left there, I'm like hearing shackles of people walking up the street. You know, all of a sudden, that's now part of right my memory, which is being fed by having these different narratives. And Gaston's Wharf, the same thing. You know, before the site was a park, people just taking their dogs out or going to the aquarium. And without that story, it's a place I can go and relive, you know, Dixie. Now with this story, you know, I watched, I was just talking to a friend having lunch and we were shooting and I was watching the tourists go out to the tourist boats, not knowing that this new thing is there. And all of a sudden going, how do I get around this thing? And they get to the fountain and there's like these bodies and shells and, you know, you can kind of see the consternation in their faces and they get to the wharf and they have to wait on the, for the boat to come and then they're sitting then they come back over and they're taking photos and you can tell that something's going on. And now they're going out to Fort Henry or whatever. And now Gaston's in their mind. And that to me is powerful. And the more we can do that in this place, in this time, I just think we would have a better understanding of who we are collectively versus the fiction that is constantly being fed to us, right? Without having to talk about these places and whether it's in, you know, coast of North Carolina, you know, the city where we had black politicians who were completely run out of town. There are all these narratives that are out there that, that I think could help us overcome these differences that we kind of see emerging at different times. Sorry for the ramble. <laughs> no, no. And you described this sort of, quote, pendulum of remembrance and neglect that exists in this country. Could you talk a bit about that and also just sort of the swings as you've seen them between the uh, the pendulum? <laughs> and that's not my quote. That's King, right? I mean, he talks <laughs> yeah, about the yeah, pendulum swings. But it had never occurred to me until the lockdown that I was just obsessing and reading just a lot. And I was reading something about the early 20s. And maybe this was when I was working on the Princeton Project as well, but with Woodrow Wilson. And I was just, I got into this whole thing of like the period of lynching. And that was like teens, 20s, 30s, you know, all the way up until the civil rights. It was still happening. But there was this moment. And I then started thinking, it was like, wow, these people are out marching in the 60s, knowing that people had been shot in their driveway or hung from a tree 40 years, 50 years before, right? And having that ability to like come back and go, no, we're doing this now and knowing that. But there was this period of time, right? We had wars, right? There were some things that changed, right? We had a housing policy, you know, some things changed and people, I guess people felt, you know, they were compelled, but we still didn't have certain rights, but people felt that, there was more freedom, I'm assuming, that they could do things now. And then we get to the late 60s. And then there's this period, not until like the 90s. And I'm in California at this point, And I'm out at a bar on a Thursday night. I remember Thursday night. And the TV comes on. And LA is rioting. 
and I'm with all white people, my friends, my colleagues, and they all get up and they leave. And I'm like, where are, we, where are you guys going? And they're going home. And I'm like, but that's in LA. And it just literally changed everything. And I remember going back home and I get to a red light. This is a real story. And I see one of my students at the light and I'm crossing the street to go to the bank, to the machine. And I hit her the top of the car and I wave. And this white guy comes running off at me and I had to grab him and push him back. She gets out. She said, that's my husband. And her husband had gone from somewhere to like pick her up from work to drive her home. And that's when it hit me that we're at this other moment, right? And then George Floyd. So there are these periods and like I have students who, you know, were not around in early nineties. So for them, it's the first one. And I'm just watching them connect dots. I'm like, no guys, <laughs> you know, this has been a long, long journey and we're just at this other place. So even with the lockdown and George Floyd, when all of this happened, I didn't get, you know, I didn't go out and scream from the mountains like lots of people because I just see it as another, as another moment and it's dissipating again. And you can kind of feel it. And who knows what the next one's going to be. I think there are those moments to act. And I think that's what I was writing. It's like we were at a moment to act because if you don't act now, complacency is going to set in. And then we're going to be normalized again. So at those moments of bifurcation, we can either move out, move in, but that's where things can actually happen. You've talked a little bit about how during these periods of neglect, there's sort of a, a quote, pregnant pause. Mm -hmm. I find that notion really powerful yeah, yeah, yeah. that during these periods of neglect, that's actually when new things can be birthed. Yeah, yeah. New things can be birthed, but also where a lot of constraint happens that's insular, that's waiting to explode, right? I mean, it's... Um, yeah, I mean, let's take the pandemic, right? You're the right, it's that... Pa pandemic hits, George Floyd, boom. Right, it's that moment. And this is what people, I think, those who live in these marginal neighborhoods are in, are always in this, this moment where I still have to go on with my life, but all this shit's happening to me. So there is this kind of inner, I was trying to hold it together. And then you have certain things that exacerbate it, like the police state, right? I mean, all of these things. And I was watching a, a program about the Watts riots and then the 90s riots with Rodney King. And it turned out that the police chief in LA was a young rookie in the Watts. Right. And in both cases, they just let shit happen, knowing what would happen. And so even 50 years later, he's now the chief, does the same thing. You go to Detroit, Black Bottom, they moved everyone from Black Bottom to the other side of the city in an already jammed neighborhood. Knowing that it's going to exacerbate something because you can't put all those people in this place and then subject them to this brutality. And then, of course, that place doesn't exist today. Rikers. Right. And I, I don't think someone's like in the Redwood Forest, you know, charting this stuff out. <laughs> yeah. But it is happening right in these different places that at these moments they do come together mm -hmm. and it creates 
write these dystopian, you know, futures for us to a certain degree. Yeah. History stumbling over itself. Oh my God. It's like, uh, yeah. And, you know, and even in this time right now, as we're driving here, it's like, I'm thinking we're not going to make it and we're getting close to the courthouse. And I'm like, okay, this is why the traffic is this way. <laughs> <laughs> an important aspect of your practice I want to bring up, but it's really an important aspect of, a, I would say, any great landscape architecture practice is how incredible it is that something you design now for today can be completely different from how it will exist mm. 20 years from now. I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about that here and use Making Yards as an mm. example, this project in Macon, Georgia, that you started in, if my numbers are correct, 1998 and completed in 2004. Tell me about this project and how have you seen that evolve over time? It's funny you choose that project. That's a project I want to say when I first got back from Rome, I worked on. And it was one of the first ones where I was digging, like literally. And it was a competition that I didn't think I would win. We were against a New England team that basically did a Boston Commonwealth Boulevard scheme. And I was like, oh, yeah, they're going to win that. And then they had a person who talked about she was the first one to write a book on place. And she had the Biddy Mason wall in it, the power of place, Dolores Hayden, which I highly respect. And I'm like, they got it. They're going to win this. Because I went down this other rabbit hole <laughs> as I started searching the history. And through my experience, I felt that they were ashamed of their black community. And the black community had been moved to Poplar Street. And I, by reading the history, I actually mapped their diaspora within the town. And they had moved, been moved three times over maybe a 70-year period. When blacks first inhabited downtown, they inhabited an area along the native Indian route, which was a diagonal down to the river. When it became a county seat, get out of here. They put the, the county building there. Then they moved them around the corner on a street called Pine or something like that. As that developed, because that was the street up to the mansions, they moved them further down the hill to the bottom of the hill. And that's where they stayed. And then they populated Poplar Street, which was a wide, wide boulevard, I want to say 180 feet wide, where they stored cotton. That's where you brought the cotton to town. And of course, it was a worker street. And there are images of just these bales of cotton in the middle of the road. And I'm like, wow, there's something here. And so the scheme, while we were there, they never took us down Poplar Street, which was the design. They took us around the corner to the Good Street, and then we went up and had mint juleps in the mansions. And as I'm going home to California, I'm thinking, God, they're embarrassed, right? And so it was like, we need to fix this street. And so I started thinking about well, there's no squares in Macon. And for some reason in the South, you think there's going to be squares like Savannah or whatever. And there's just these wide ass roads. And so I started thinking about backyards and my particularly backyard growing up where the front yard was where you showed everyone. And that's what they showed us. In the backyard, you don't show anyone your backyard. That's where all the junk cars are. That's, that's the stuff you hide. That's where the dogs are. <laughs> but the front is the thing that you show. And so that's when I came up with this idea of making yards. And so during the project, it was then about showing that there was a market here, a creek here, there were these alleys here, you know, all of this stuff. And just, it was a very postmodern 
you know, 90s idea. And I didn't think we were going to win because it was it was very disjunctive. It was like stuff just didn't fit together. It was a lot of ideas put together. And one of the, unbeknownst to me, one of the guys on the jury actually was uh, a neighbor, was one of the residents, black guy, and he fought for my scheme. And I didn't know it until afterwards. And he said, this is the only scheme that's going to keep us on Poplar Street. So we win. Jim Marshall is the mayor, who then becomes a congressman later. We become good friends. I come down and we try to make the plan happen. Then he goes off to D.C. and they get their first black mayor and he builds it. Some things got built the way I wanted. Some things didn't. Uh, It's the South. And, you know, the project was there. And then slowly I started seeing pictures of it. You know, at Christmas time, they light it up. It's this weird thing. They just light everything. And then when George Floyd hit, someone said they should remove the Daughters of the Confederacy obelisk. I thought that was interesting because 20 years before, I was like, the obelisk was obscured. And I cleaned it up and put a fountain in front of it, (laughs) right? Which was a completely different take on these things than in contemporary times where people want things to go. And I think they've removed it, and I think they've redesigned the first two blocks. I had cast these bales of cotton. There was a fountain that had a runnail that led right to the daughters of the Confederacy. And for me, I was confronting history right through this work versus the erasure. And I think what has happened with that project now, that piece has been erased, and it's just a different time and place. And that's one of the projects over 25 years that has had a change that's related directly to the social change that's happening in the country, where I compare it to another project, Splash Pad Park, 25 years old, now under a freeway, next to a freeway, large market. They just celebrated 25 years last Saturday, and it's just an amazing place. Still the same. I mean, the city doesn't take care of it. You know, it's holding together very well, but it's still doing its work and people don't see a need to change it. Lafayette Square Park, which is of the same time, these are all 20, 25-year-old projects. Homelessness is at a rise again, and the gentry comes in and they want to you know, change it. And immediately someone from the city calls and goes, someone's, they're trying to change. I go meet with them. They're like, oh, we're just gonna put in some bocce balls. Like, no bocce, keep the horseshoes. Because the bocce is not recognizing these black guys who have been here, right? And so still having conversations, but I can see how projects like Lafayette could have that that flip really fast with the new gentry because they still don't see these people who are inhabiting the park as someone who belongs in this place. And so change is different in landscapes because again, you could have these social political moments where things just change or you have this slow creep, right? Where cities are dynamic and they do change, but when the polis changes outright, you can see complete erasure. And I don't expect for my projects to last, you know, a lifetime, but I do expect them, how can I say, to have a conversation with their times because of just how they're made. Yeah, and I think one of the profound things is how people respond to a landscape. And you've said landscape shapes you and it shapes how you view the world. So I wanted to ask about two locations in particular. You, You just sort of hinted at one, which is Oakland the other being the American South. Could you share here kind of in hindsight how you think about the Oakland work? 
and your nearly four decades mm -hmm. living there, how you've seen those projects emerge, evolve, and reshape the city as you know it. Yeah, the, the Oakland work is very different in that it doesn't document, but it, it actually spotlights my struggle living in a city that doesn't really believe in itself, that doesn't believe that it has this innate power to change itself. Oakland listens to the world too much, right? It's like, oh, we, we don't want to be like San Francisco. We don't want to be like this. But in turn, it kind of, oh, we're a black city. You know, it just keeps listening to itself versus stepping back and going, that's not us. <laughs> we, we're many things. And we keep coming back to a kind of a single definition. Uh, and then people romanticize it. You know, so every decade I see the young hipsters coming in and graffiti and everything. And I'm like, really? And it's this, we found this place. And that's what I mean by not defining it so that other people don't come in and define it for you. And we've fallen into this. And those projects to me spotlight these moments where I've tried to like help the city, you know, envision and change itself. And our last project, the Oakland Museum, is the last one, which is like this past year. And if I go back 25 years and it's completely different than those early projects, those early projects, public, really strongly coming out of a kind of a public ethic. And now this one's an institutional one. And it's interesting how the public stuff, I can't do the public stuff anymore, right? Because you don't even have the people in place to allow you to do them in a way that's powerful and prophetic. Right. And so now you have to look to the institutions, right, that might do it. But the city is so fragile and broken at this point. That's what the work means to me. And right now, I, I don't have any projects in Oakland. Right. I'm about to do one in Piedmont, which is a small enclave, but I don't have any in Oakland. And there's not a, can I say, it's really strange to, you know, to be in a place and to have some notoriety and you can't have that impact the way you want to have it because of just the thinking, right? And so what we've decided to do then is invest. I just bought a new building and we're trying to like try another way now. And that's through being in this place and being, being one of the people to a certain degree versus trying to make work. And, and every day I go like, why did I buy this building? You know, because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a long, uh, a script of landscape that's completely uninvested in, full of nonprofits, full of parasitic uses. And, you know, there's just no dream of this place. And that's what I mean. It's like when I, when I first came to Oakland, it was like a dream. It was like people still riding high on the civil rights, having their first black mayors, like the dream. We could be this amazing, the Panthers, all of this. And then slowly you just start to see this change where, the dream just, I don't know, just no one sees the city in this powerful way. We had Jerry Brown, who was this amazing mayor who had a dream. First one, and I'm on leaders living, someone who got up in front of the mic was saying, we should do this, right? Where the rest of them like, uh, so, but don't get me going on my hometown. <laughs> it gets really depressed. <laughs> do you have any hope the pendulum could swing back? At some point, but... 
I've gotten over trying to make that big change. At one point in time, I was very optimistic and idealistic that you could at that scale. But in this country, I mean, there are so many things that are broken that it's just really, really hard. We got rid of redevelopment agencies. We got rid of parks departments. We got rid of our planning department. You know, we just got rid of all these things which collectively suggests we all buy into this idea of the civics of our country. And we want to all participate. And we have to participate with capital. And you're seeing right now in the country, no one wants to do it. And it's hitting everything from our infrastructure, our education system, our health system. It's just destroying us to a certain degree. And we're fractured. And at one point in time, I did have this optimism for the belief in the public, that the public, meaning the collective, we can solve anything. And we're just so divisive now. It's just, I'm not optimistic about that. And that's, you know, even seeing the work that public work, I argue very early, that's all I want to do. And I can't make a living doing public work, which is really sad. Hey everyone, taking a quick break here to tell you a little bit about our season eight presenting sponsor, the Maison Van Cleef and Arpels, which this year is working with the American Museum of Natural History in New York to present the exhibition Garden of Green, exquisite jewelry by Van Cleef and Arpels at the museum's Mignone Hall of Gems and Minerals. On view through March 2024, Garden of Green showcases 44 creations from the French High Jewelry House, 32 of which are on view in the U.S. for the first time. Creating a lush garden of jewelry, this impressive array of precious and ornamental green stones forms a dazzling journey that celebrates the beauty of gardens and nature. To learn more, visit www.amnh.org slash exhibitions. That's www.amnh.org slash exhibitions. And now, back to the episode. Turning to the American South, (laughs) which this ties back to your upbringing in Charlotte, but I wanted to ask here a little bit about the International African American Museum in Charleston, uh, also Natives, this project that you've shown at the mm-hmm. Venice Biennale this year. It's a design for a set of public buildings for a South Carolina Gullah community. What has it been like for you to take these trips back to the South, engage in work there, in the landscapes there, in the Carolinas? Going back there after 20, maybe even 30 years being away, I never understood it as I thought I understood because I left like when I was 18. I never understood the South in that North Carolina always during my time thought of itself as a Northern state. It's got North in it. Right, right. right? So it's like this Northern state. And even my whole time growing up, I never considered we were part of a conf- the Confederacy. But South Carolina, it was like they're Geechee. We call them Geechee, and I never even understood why I just said they eat rice, we eat grits. That was the big thing. That's what you said. They eat rice for breakfast. We don't eat rice for breakfast. You know, and that was the big thing of South Carolina. And 
And then when I went through, you know, landscape architecture and architectural school, I read a lot of Olmsted's travels through the South. And, you know, South Carolina was always thought of as this like tattered place. It was never highly organized. And so I just had all these ideas in my head about South Carolina. And then when I got invited to do my first Spoleto installation with Mary Jane Jacobs, I spent two and a half months there off and on, just going back and forth. And we, we got had a place, apartment, me and three other artists. It just brought back all of those memories because it's hot, it's humid, you know, it's just like, it's in the air, the Southern drawl. I mean, I, all of this stuff started flooding back. And it's now been this really interesting way for me being introduced back to the South through South Carolina, not through North Carolina, right? And I spent more time probably in the last 10 years in South Carolina, not North Carolina. And so it's really opened my eyes to a lot of things. And it's really interesting seeing North Carolina through that lens because now I can be a little bit more critical about the times that when I came up, the things that I didn't know about, now I see them in a clearer way. And now we have our first project in Charlotte, well, our second project in Charlotte. And it's interesting having that conversation with people who are there because they're all new, right? They're all the new gentry coming in with the banking money. So they kind of see the history in a completely different way. And I'm bringing it up and it's like really, really interesting. So it's been a re-education process, but it also has been revelatory. I feel really, really passionate about that work. And we just got a new commission in Atlanta. And I was telling someone we're out in Oxford, Georgia, and it's the first time I've ever started a project out, like I was introduced to the college and the president was there of Oxford campus and the Atlanta campus for Emory. And I just, I was in tears. I just cried because of the power of this place. And it was just because they, they had showed me some books about these ex-slaves and one of the, their names was Walter, you know, and then I'm in this kind of antebellum building and so I'm like introducing my firm and everything. I'm like, literally, I started crying. And then the president, the new president of Oxford, the new dean of Oxford, the sister from Chicago, she starts talking and then she starts crying. And because she's telling the story about her history when she's 10 years old and she's asked to do a family genealogy project and she could only go back to her grandmother. And then she's crying. And I was like, Man, what is going on here? But it's, you know, it's, it's the South. And people wear those emotions. Yeah, add a, add a little more context here. This project, <laughs> the Twin Memorials oh, Project. Yeah, yeah. Share for the listeners a little bit what this project is. Uh, it's um, a project where Emory University, Oxford, mid-1860s, starts out as a, a Methodist training school for boys that becomes one of the first universities there. And it's built by enslaved people. Uh, it's in Oxford, Georgia, which is like 45 minutes outside of Atlanta. And the descendants are still there. And in Atlanta, there's an Atlanta campus, in which I found out they call Big Emory and they call Oxford Little Emory. And you spend two years at Little Emory and then you go to Big Emory, which is really interesting. And you go to the city. And we haven't met with the people from the city yet, but the idea is to build two twin memorials, one in the urban Atlanta and one in Oxford that tells this story. Uh, and at my introduction, I was like, I'm not into monuments, 
I'm not into memorials. That was my first thing. And I just started telling them that it's about these two places. But it was more, I think, of a branding strategy for them to make them memorials because I think in people's minds, that's what they can kind of elicit from that term versus keeping it ambiguous. But they've done a lot of work already. They had a firm come up with ideas, which gave me a lot of reservation, uh, but they seem open. So exciting. I mean, I think there's a lot of work to be done if we're talking about, you know, the American landscape and acknowledging the enslaved labor that's gone into it. University of Virginia did a a beautiful small memorial, (laughs) but that's just the term for it. You could look at it and it could be considered a piece of landscape as well. No, Um, it's a wonderful piece. And the issues that I tend to have, and I've talked to Mabel and some of the others even who worked on that project. And it's like, you know, when I went to that interview, I was like, okay, they were asked. And I was like, no, the name should be on the buildings. You shouldn't do another space somewhere. You should put their names on the buildings. And I just knew I lost that one. And then I talked to the design team and they were like, yeah, we were trying, trying, trying. And it was like, that was not going to happen, right? To get it to be in that sacred space. And to me, that's that's the work. How can we have these double logics, double semiotics, you know, that we actually design versus those that emerge? Because I think that's our problem. It's almost like we can't walk and chew gum at the same time, right? It's like, I can only take this story. <laughs> if you add that, it just messes everything up. You yeah. know, I can't deal with that. But they've started to do it at Monticello, right? I mean... It's probably the better one where they literally, a Mulberry Road, they, even they rebuilt the slave cabins too good. And they (laughs) then talk about, you know, Sally Hemmings, it's right there. But even there, they're like, you know, I don't know if they've made it or not. They were like interviewing to make a space, a decompression space. So I went and interviewed for that. I knew I wasn't going to get them. I'm like, so what's a decompression space? They were like, so we know when people come here and they're going to experience these things, you know, we got to give them some place to like, and I'm like, I've been coming here for so long. You never gave me a place to decompress. So it's just this weird thing. And it's coming out, of, I think, out of whiteness. You know, and so this idea that for us to learn the truth, that you somehow have to, have to like mitigate it. So what's the use? Right. And so that's where I think I find some of the projects or the ways that we're going about. It. And that's was my fear for this project, because it was like. It's a twin memorials and it's, they have all these concepts because they're looking at other places. And so, of course, in the study, they showed, you know, the thing in UVA, they showed these other projects. And I was like, eh, it's got to come out of, you know, this place. And I think that's the work. If I can go to the blah, blah, blah and understand that it's not as simple as the architect, you know, who put their name in the corner of the building. Uh, you know, we tried to do this in Washington, D.C. Um, I'm going to say it. I don't know who's going to listen to this uh, for the AIA headquarters. And we were hired to work on that. And one of the pieces, you know, we're right next to the Capitol. And there's an old colonial house, the Octagon House, right across from this brutalist building. And so there's this really interesting juxtaposition of time. We have this colonial time and we have this mid-century modernist time. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. And so I designed these walls and I put 
all the names of the slaves who built the Capitol on the wall because, you know, I was like, architecture never talks about its labor. And wouldn't it be great if you came to this place to learn about architects and you actually, labor was just presented. <laughs> oh, this isn't the right place. Uh, I'm like, like, really? I said, really? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's hard for people to, that dialectic, you know, the dialectical, it's, it's really hard for people to, I don't know, to give that up. And to me, it's not giving it up. It's actually freeing yourself. Yeah, you stare it head on to deal right? with it. and then, Free yourself. Yeah. Yeah. What we're talking about here in part is memory. <laughs> and, and given that you've done so much in the public realm, so much of which has to do with collective memory, could you talk a bit about this aspect in your work? Like, how do you create for a multitude of truths and perspectives and people because mm. it's not about the monolithic yeah. you're celebrating difference yeah. through your work well sometimes you just can't focus on people and that's to me where the place comes in the de young museum is a good example of that where we were hired with herzog to design this museum and we pretty much only had a forecourt and a, and a sliver between the buildings and over time we ended up with two donor gardens at either ends they're very different because I had two clients. But the thing that I got really interested in was the creation of the park. And it wasn't a story that I like presented to people. This was just my own digging. And, you know, the park was a sand dune, giant sand dune. And they basically had to figure out the botany, the horticulture to change the sand dune. And so McLaren, I think it was McLaren, he went to Europe because the Dutch and others were experimenting with this process of taking beaches and sand dunes and turning them into land. And so there's a whole process because Olmsted came out was like, you guys are stupid, prevailing winds, you should do your thing up here, you should not build a park because of what it would take. So they had to literally cut the tops of mountains, bring in topsoil, they had to start with grass first, then they had to start with perennials before they could even draw trees. And so for a long time, this landscape was becoming, and I got really fascinated with this. And then they started getting donations from places where they were having relationships with, like Australia. So Australia was giving them like Australian tree ferns, right? And the Japanese tea garden gets built, and so they get these maples, and they start their own uh, botanical garden and horticulture places. I'm like, huh. So all the vegetation <laughs> at the De Young is from a quarter mile around the museum, and everything on the ground when you look down is about the sand. And that's pretty much all we say to the and so it's a place where people come in and there's something going on. They don't know it, but I don't need to talk about people. I can talk about this place. And that to me is where that some projects liberate themselves, right? Where it's just giving people a different way to see the place that they're in that creates the bind. When I ask people, they go to the young, I can ask a black person, a white person, Italian, whatever. They're having this experience of that place unfettered by race class and some of these other things. And that's very few and far between. And that's where the institutions, I think, do really well. Museums have become these new public places where people can come in and you have this kind of freedom of artistry, right, to make a place that can reference many things. The Broad, a big fiction, right? Olive trees on top of a parking deck, you know, and there's a <laughs> tunnel underneath. And of course, it's L.A., 
right? And there's a kind of a thing going there and seeing people taking selfies with trees, but that's LA, <laughs> right? Or, or Jackson, um, Wyoming, where, you know, on the side of this hill, we just made a quarter mile long, 20 foot wide terrace. And it's like you see the landscape and it just blows your mind. But they didn't see it before because they had a parking lot. So sometimes it's just that freedom of getting people to like understand where they are can have this amazing impact. And the last time I was in Jackson, the museum had put together for me to do a walk just along this thing. And they invited these young Latino students because their fathers and mothers are probably the workers in the hotels and everything. And I was taken by these kids. They just came up to me and they were like, how, how did you become? They were just so inquisitive and it was awesome because they were unfettered by who they were, why they were here. And they were just like, wow, we're on the side of this hill and you did this. And I think they couldn't imagine that I could do something that wouldn't have race in it. You can kind of feel it. And they were just, it was a kind of a liberating kind of moment for it's me. It's not about that. Right. And it's about just being mm -hmm. here. And then they were just really inquisitive. Like, how do you get to a place to do this? And I was reading from them. It's like freedom. Right. Because they don't see a lot of people like me doing this kind of work. And I do think it's that moment where that freedom can happen with the medium. But you have to have a client who's willing, right? That's where these institutions become really important. And the client is not hitting you over the head with some programmatic or some pedagogical objective that they think the project should have, which, you know, more and more in public landscapes, that's kind of what you're getting. It's like, oh, no, we got to honor these five people. We got to do all this. We got to do all this. And we got to, like, make it maintenance free, <laughs> right? And it's like, really? Why can't it just be about shade, <laughs> right? Because it's really hot out here. <laughs> So sometimes it's, you know, really pushing against it, but more and more it's, it's that space that you're given so that you can have this kind of freedom, right, to talk about place. I think some of this also ties, and you've talked about this, to language mm. and, and using language as a tool for freeing up yeah. new ideas. and. In preparing for this, and uh, <laughs> I heard you reference all these different phrases that I wanted to mention here, one of which is uh, vague terrains. It's J.B. Jackson mm -hmm. phrase. Uh, your book also notes prophetic aesthetics, which is a, a phrase that I've seen credited to be Ruby Rich. She's written a lot about that. And I saw another interview where you reference Svetlana Boehm's book, The Future mm -hmm. of Nostalgia, yeah. where she uses the terms reflective nostalgia and restorative nostalgia. I mean, these are such great yeah, terms. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> vague terrains. <laughs> I'm a sucker for terms. Man. Yeah, vague terrains, yeah, yeah, yeah. prophetic aesthetics. Yeah, yeah. What, what, do you, what do you think they offer you as a landscape architect, and, and how, how do you engage language in your work? Mm. Well, language is really important. I mean... I'm trying to finish this book. Hopefully it's done next year on hybrid landscapes. And this has been cooking for quite a while because my work started out with this idea of improvisation, you know, and really looking at the African cultural arts. Yeah, you had an early book in the yeah, 90s, and, and right? and really yeah, like this, trying to yeah. work through that. And then I saw that it was kind of almost too broad. And, you know, and every time I brought up improvisation, people would be like, oh, did you listen to jazz music while you design? So then I like <laughs> figured that landscape architects were not, or the profession was not theoretically inclined or not even interested in this place of critique per se. 
and that we were more associated with these typologies and the typologies. And even if you ask a landscape architect a typology, they'll tell you an orchard is a typology. And I'm talking about a post-colonial typology, like a plaza, a square, a street, a park. That's an American invention, the wilderness. You know, these are typologies that are colonial and now they're post-colonial and we somehow covet them to a certain degree. The term placemaking. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, suggests that nothing's there. Right. And even the use of place is so broad and it's not even coming from place or, you know, the word for morphological or typological unit out of Spain. And so I started hearing how these typologies were just used in a way that they just didn't have any power to them anymore. Like you could, a parklet. A park could be anything now. Right. You could have a park inside your basement here. Right. <laughs> oh, come into my park. And no one would question it. Which means then if I'm designing something out in the landscape and I'm calling it a park, I'm not even interested in this definition anymore. And so that got me interested in this notion then of how do I move away from these typologies? And that means language. I have to figure out a way to call them other things. And that's where the vague terrain comes in. You know, when, you, when I first read that, I was like, oh, these were the spaces, kind of spaces I played in as a kid. You know, the old power line, they just left it or, you know, someone who just didn't hack the weeds in their backyard and left a, a stand of things. These were just these places that were undifferentiated as far as typological. There was no names on them per se. Uh, some people might call them vacant lots. And then I started seeing that when I got a project and if I disagreed with the client, I had to have another way to talk about the project. And then I became really interested in one and just changing the typology. So if someone was like, well, why don't you design this park? And I say the spaces, it was an old house. It was a residential lot. And now they want a park. I'm like, what if we made it a garden? And it immediately changed the conversation. Ah, never thought of that being a garden. And then the garden can be whatever you want to make it to a certain degree. But it's got to have some botanical stuff in it. But it doesn't have this prescriptive um, set of objectives to it. Same thing with streets. When you call it a streetscape. Right. You're forced then to think of trees and pits. Right. Versus, you know, thinking of it as a landscape. And so then we started coming up with just different names for projects like the solar strand or and it's coming out of landscape. It's a long linear thing. Oh, it's a strand. So let's call it the solar, you know, and that then became a way. It's like people then start saying it. Oh, Walter, Walter's building the solar strand. It's like, got you. Right. And it's all of a sudden then that becomes a way. And then hearing people reference, oh, Plaza Park. It's like, well, why is it compound? Ah, it was a plaza at one time. Then people wanted it to be green because homeless people were here or something was happening here and they wanted it to change. And then I ran across Omibaba's work and others linguistically who talked about linguistics. And there's this formal and informal hybrids in linguistics. And the formal basically creates double negatives. They never co-join. They're just there, button heads, right? And you hear that sometimes in language. And then there is the informal. And these are new words, new meanings. And that's where you can go. And so my book is about these early projects, which are formal hybrids. And I think the work today is probably more informal hybrids, which is seeking these new terms, new words, and new ways to talk about landscape. 
Hey everyone, taking another quick break here to quickly mention the Slowdown's new membership program. At just over $8 a month, it provides access to our slate of new member-only newsletters, in-depth stories, immersive interviews, and curated recommendations. If you haven't already checked it out and want to learn more, or if you'd simply like to support this podcast and all that we do at the Slowdown, go to slowdown.tv slash subscribe. That's slowdown.tv slash subscribe. And now, back to the episode. You touched on it, so I want to return to it, the the vague terrain of your youth. Um, (laughs) Tell me a little bit about your upbringing. Could you speak about your mother, father, what your childhood was like, and maybe go a bit more into that vague terrain? Um, My father was in the military. So we, first part of my life, I was like six, we were traveling all the time, a stint in Fontainebleau, France, near the Black Forest, going into weekends with my mother and father. I remember going into Pigalle. They called it Pig Alley. I guess this is where (laughs) the black soldiers could go and, and dance, and I would go in and dance at night. So there are these vague memories of like that part. And then we moved to Charlotte when I was very young, and my mom was like, I'm not traveling anymore. So my father had to like, you know, literally, he still had to go to like Fort Benning, Georgia, then Texas or whatever. And he just basically commuted. My mom was like, I ain't going anywhere. And so we grew up in a segregated neighborhood in Charlotte on um, Moretz Avenue. And behind our house was a power line right of way. And it must have been like 200, 300 feet wide. And I just remember our backyard being really big. We had two dogs and we must have had like at least a quarter acre more. And my dad basically would plant it. And this is in the middle of the city. He would basically farm it. And then every, you know, Saturday, my mom would say, get out of the house because she would clean the house. You only existed in a neighborhood. You know, and I look at it now because I'm working in Charlotte and I like always look like, God, I thought it was so big. It was like maybe 10, 12 blocks. But that was our landscape. And you knew everyone there. And these vague terrains were interesting because you just knew different ways to different places. And so to go to the store for my mom, I could go out of the house, cut through my neighbor's yard. Someone had pierced the fence, hit the right of way, go down the right of way and come back around. If I wanted to be more public, I could come around the other way and walk down the street, which was boring. And there were all of these places. We had like the parachute tree was a stand of trees that... They were probably legustrums or something where you could like climb the tree and grab the branch and jump out and it would take you down. It was like, you know, just crazy stuff, the creeks, but it was just this undeveloped land, leftover land because of right of ways, because of buried creeks, you know, all of these things we know that happened in those segregated neighborhoods. And that was pretty much, you know, my youth. Um, I never thought about it being segregated until we went to the suburbs. So I was in high school, it's like, ah, it's a different world out here, which was completely different. There were no more vague terrains. It was new. It was a landscape that seemed, that it was just created, right? And I know it was probably 20, 30 years old. And as soon as we moved in, all the whites moved out. And, and it was like that moment where, okay, now I understand. And then, once a month, we would get in the car and go to my grandmother's house 
90 miles away outside of Raleigh to Fuquay Varina. And this was like woods. I mean, this was country outhouse, talking 70s, you know, 80s outhouse, you know, and it's just like, okay, this is, this is really, everything's a vague terrain. (laughs) And that was kind of the upbringing, Um, which again, you know, when I think about it, even today, it was a very special moment in time because it was, you know, the 70s and the 80s, which was a product of a progressiveness in the black community where people could actually move. They had mobility. And to watch my father go from, you know, a serviceman, a butcher, he had a butcher job at night. He was at the evac station during the day because he was giving soldiers um, their medical exams. We lived in the projects. I remember lived in the projects for a couple of years and they were able to buy like a little house. And then 15 years later, being able to go to the suburbs and buy a bigger house. So that was a very clear trajectory that stayed in my brain. And I was the first one to go to college. And so to want to stay in college. And so that trajectory always, I always felt this trajectory. And I think a lot of that has put me in the trajectory that I've been, where it's like education, education, education. You know, you literally have to keep, there's a trajectory. There is no flattening. When you had this profound moment in high school where you saw this drafting yeah, yeah. class yeah. and the teacher was a brother. Turned out was black. Yeah, was a brother and went to the HBCU who didn't force me he didn't force me, but he convinced me to go there. But there were these moments, you know, but but there was always there was always this kind of incline, though. Know, and it what didn't feel like, you know, we we're pushing the rock up the hill, but there was always this thing of there's more expected right? This is not the end, right? And that's where I get around people where this futile mentality, I can, I never can be in that headspace because I was brought up, like my grandmother would always say, you know, get as much education as you can. She would always say that. And when I was very, I never understood what she meant, but what she meant was, you know, no one can take that away from you at a certain point. You know, you're, you define your own self and but those are, you know, things that, you know, as you get older, you go like, why am I this way? <laughs> How did I end up this way? And, you know, a lot of that is is through that experience that you have in a place. Yeah. I did want to mention here, your education might have started maybe on the more technical side. Oh, yeah. But you went on to get your MFA at the Art Institute. Finally, finally. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, finally. And I would say... In that process, you also built sort of a liberal arts approach to mm-hmm. your worldview, yeah, your yeah. understanding of things um, that wasn't necessarily given to you straight away through your education. It was something yeah. that kind of like evolved. And your approaches as a designer is also this one of nuance and subtlety that I think really comes out of this liberal arts line oh, of yeah. thinking. Yeah. You aren't creating super corporate things. You're also not creating Instagram moments. You're, you aren't doing things that are overly theatrical. Like, this is not work that screams out for attention. <laughs> and and but, that's been the critique at times. But it does carry this sort of profound meaning. And I think it's this meaning that can only be found, or not only, but predominantly can be found through the kind of inquiry that you find mm through liberal arts education, through um, an arts education as well, like you got at the Art Institute. 
So to those who pay attention to your design and really engage the work that you do, I think that there are these revelations that occur. Well, I hope. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. You know, I always like to say we don't do pink chairs, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like if I got to paint it pink, I'm not doing my work, <laughs> right? If I, you know, if I have to. Unless know, there's a reason to paint it pink. Right. But I mean. but you know what I mean? It's kind of <laughs> like. Uh, how do you make a work that. You don't need to talk about, right? And and I've had these amazing people in my life, like Giancarlo Di Carlo, which I hardly ever talk about. But I spent three summers actually in his presence in Urbino, Siena. Two summers in Urbino and one in in Siena, and he would just say these things that. He just stayed with you, right? He'd say these things like, if you take something away, you have to put it back. <laughs> you know, they just would say these little things. And and the way his architecture was different than any other architecture I had seen before. You know, it was coming out of the Corbusian, you know, the, that mid-century modernist, but he was really interested in people and place. And he would go to a place and he'd be walking and before you knew it, the whole town's walking with him. But it was that kind of Pied Piper mentality. And we went to one project in Catania when he did this restoration. And it just seemed normal. And he took us behind and they had like rewired the place because they modernized it. And the wiring was so fucking immaculate. <laughs> but that was the place where he, you know, put the time. And I was like, wow. And then he said something where it's like, Scarpa, if the hand cannot touch it, it's not architecture or something like that. And then I started noticing, you know, on Scarpa projects, on railings, the wood, you know, this there's this amazing kind of tactile. Tactile, but a conversation with yeah. knowing where that moment would happen. And it's not a visual thing. It's not look at my building. Right. It's experience my building. And and that's something that I really say like haptic. Yeah, I really like. And it's like you want that thing where people are sitting there and it's like, fuck. The sun is in my face, <laughs> right? Where there's that moment of revelation. It's not much, but you just did something. And uh, you walk into the pantheon. Yeah, yeah, right? Right? It's, and, a, and it's it, a hole in the it's ceiling. It's just a fucking hole. <laughs> but it's a great hole, right? I mean, but those are the those are those moments. And, yeah. and they're few and far between. Um, like the fountain at IAM, I have to say, I hadn't seen it working and we were there doing the opening and that's one of those moments where everything disappeared and people were like huh what's this there's no sign <laughs> and then the water receded and people were like, holy shit and then the security guard is telling people something and it's wrong but it's great and then someone comes up to me and was like man i love those bones man i like how you did the bones the bones are just different Someone else came at me and like in that one weekend, I had at least a dozen interpretations and I was like, awesome. That's so cool. And of course the museum was like, Walter, we need you to tell people. And I'm like, no. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I actually, I want to end on this question because to me, this is the crux of your work and it's what I love about your work. And I think it's also what makes your, your work so special is this power of abstraction that you move away from these literal or figurative interpretations. You're not hitting people over the head with the thing. You're actually embracing ambiguity. 
Could you talk yeah. about that? This this well, it, why embrace amb- ambiguity yeah. and what comes out of that? What ultimately is like if we could all embrace ambiguity a little more, what do you think? Well, we started out talking about difference. To me, that is the quintessential thing to kind of allow difference to pervade our lives, right? Where everything is, well, is that there because of this? Everything's in question because everything is in conversation. There's no resolution. You know, for a long time, I used to think about resolution as just this kind of visual thing, right? And I tell my students, squint, come on, you know, all of that. But this resolution of like, disjunct, you know, like incongruency, you know, that we have this over our head. It's like things should line up. Things should be the same, you know, all of this. And it's like if you put a ketchup bottle in the middle of mayonnaise, it's like, wow, there's a red thing. You know, I mean, it's just this wonderful thing that could happen because it's then calling attention to uncertainty, to the precarious aspect of life to a certain degree. And I love the idea that things can mean many things to different people. And that's the beauty. And so when I heard this guy, this security guard talking, you know, giving his description, I was like, that's fine. He's like, no, tell me. And I'm like, no, you got it right, man. <laughs> you know? And he, of course, he's just making it up. And he's well, what like, do you think it is, right? And Yeah. That's- and he's like, oh, these are the dead people who died here. I mean, he literally, he's like, these are the people who died right here. And I'm like, that's good. You know, and then some people are like, this is an abstract thing on Atlantic Cross, and that's good. Oh, this is the blah, blah, blah. That's all good. And it's all of those things, right? Because I can't think of one design I've designed that says, that means that. That's a lot to put on a move, right? It's like, this means this. And of course, you see designs where people think, okay, that has a singular meaning, but no, it doesn't. Someone's going to come without the sign and go, that's a big asshole. <laughs> Why would you make a hole this big, right? And, and so people will have their different um, opinions about it. But I love this idea. I call it embracing the strange. But, you know, things look out of place or unkiltered or something seems just not quite right. But I'm going in there anyway, right? And to me, those are the places that I remember. You go in the Pantheon in the rain. It's like, am I supposed to be in here? Right? There's that moment where you see people, they come in the door, go like, and then they just move in around it. And it's it's just this wonderful thing. I think design has that ability to put us in these spaces and allow us to be in those spaces, right? Unfettered, but in a way that we want to be, right? Which I think is a very optimistic way of thinking about it, but it also suggests that everybody's welcome, right? And there's a place for everyone uh, under the sun, so. Walter, thank you. Hey, no, thank you, man, for these revelations. (laughs) (laughs) Extra thanks to our season eight presenting sponsor, the Maison Van Cleef and Arpels. Van Cleef and Arpels' jewelry is characterized by a distinctive blend of poetry and refinement. With its iconic jewelry collections, it is an invitation to a timeless universe of beauty and harmony. You can discover more at vancleefarpels.com. That's V-A-N-C-L-E-E-F-A-R-P-E-L-S.com. And thank you for listening. You can find more episodes of Time Sensitive on our website, timesensitive.fm, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To join the Slowdown's new membership program, which provides access to subscriber-only newsletters, in-depth stories, immersive interviews, and curated recommendations, go to slowdown.tv slash subscribe. That's slowdown.tv slash subscribe. Our theme music was composed by Billy Martin. This episode was produced by Ramon Broza, Emily Jang, Mimi Hannon, Hazen Mayo, Emily McDonald, and Johnny Simon. <laughs>